Hey, everybody. Here at Keep Talking Podcast, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we have a health or fitness-related episode because I'm a personal trainer in my spare time, and I'm a total health and nutrition nerd, and I think it's very important for you to focus on your health and nutrition and fitness as well. Now, a lot of Keep Talking's audience is non-native English speaking, and the language in these episodes is often advanced English, but... I'll make sure that I speak clearly and concisely enough for all non-native speakers and, of course, native speakers to understand. All right, enjoy the episode. Well, hello, everybody. And before we start this, I want to apologize again for the not great audio. I'm recording this once again from my Airbnb in Casablanca, Morocco. And, you know, so I'm not home with all of my... um, regular podcasting equipment, which has a better sound quality, just recording this from the computer. Uh, but, you know, I think it's it's still good enough, and I hope that the information is good enough to make you want to stick around, even though the sound quality may not be the best. Anyway, uh, here today to talk about how to hack your, uh, your digestive issues, right? Hack your eating, your lifestyle, in order to get rid of digestive issues, because this is something that I've struggled with. My whole life have finally started making some good improvements in it over the last couple years and I want to share what's worked for me with you not necessarily to tell you to do the same thing because I'm a firm believer now that we are all extremely different in the way that our bodies react to different foods and to different eating styles and different diets but to give you some ideas about what might work for you things that you could try out now Disclaimer, before I start, I can't give you medical advice in this podcast. I'm not a doctor, blah, blah, blah. That's the end of my disclaimer. Once again, we're all super different when it comes to diet and the way our bodies, the way our gut reacts to things. So just to give a little background on why I'm so passionate about this, I think for me it kind of started, I feel like it started late in my teenage years, but I started having all sorts of like digestive gastrointestinal issues. I mean, I'm 33 years old right now. And I've had two colonoscopies, if that tells you anything. Usually they don't even recommend that as a screening test until you're like 50 years old, right? Um, But, you know, I had bad enough gastrointestinal issues that I wanted to get it checked out and make sure it wasn't anything more serious. It hasn't been to this point, thank goodness. And, you know, the doctors will always come back and, like, they'll diagnose it as as IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which, I mean, you might as well just make the BS of that bullshit, literally like irritable bullshit, irritable bowel syndrome. It's a diagnosis that to me like means almost nothing. Literally like you can, you can uh, Google it here and it'll tell you like irritable bowel syndrome is an intestinal disorder causing pain in the belly, gas, diarrhea, and constipation. The cause of irritable bowel syndrome isn't well understood. A diagnosis is often made based on symptoms. Okay, so it's like they give you this thing that they call irritable bowel syndrome, but they have no idea what exactly causes it. They're just like, yep, your stomach gets upset. (laughs) It's okay. I know that. Thank you. Anyway, um, and I've had, you know, just like almost all of the types of symptoms that you can imagine, you know, bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, all of these things from time to time, and really have struggled to try to figure out what the exact cause is. And, you know, you'll hear about people, probably people who have more severe cases even than me, that try things like, you know, like true elimination diets, right? Where you strip everything away and, and, you know, like, let's say you're only eating, you know, meat for a while, and then you gradually start adding things back into your diet to see what causes the problem. Now, I've never done something like that extreme, but you get the point. Like, it's a matter of experimentation to figure out what works for us 
when we have these issues, okay? And this is something that plagued me in different ways throughout my 20s. And like I said, I finally started to get a good grasp on it, I feel like, over especially the past year or two. It's not perfect yet, but it's getting a lot better. And so, you know, I really started playing around with diet a lot, I would say, in about 2017, 2018. I actually had a period where I went um, vegetarian for about six months, four, four, between four and six months total, I think. And I did one week of that where I went totally vegan, no animal products. And then I'm like, nah, screw this. I, I, need, <laughs> I need eggs at least. Uh, I need some animal products. Uh, but anyway, did the vegetarian experiment. Certainly, you know, I, I was fine with it, but it didn't like solve all the issues. Eventually went back to eating um, meat and things like that. I tried what they call what they call a low FODMAP diet for a while. So a low FODMAP, what FODMAPs are, let me see if I can remember off the top of my head, it's fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, if I'm correct. I've got it pulled up here, I'm trying to remember. Something like that. Anyway, but essentially foods that are high FODMAP foods are like fermentable carbohydrates that, you know and, and like let me give you some examples of what this looks like so if you're on a low FODMAP diet um, it's not like totally excluding any food group so there are some fruits vegetables grains milk products other products that work there but there are other ones that you have to eliminate so like just a few examples like you can eat bananas and blueberries uh, but you shouldn't be eating things like apples and pears um, you know, you can eat, um, it, it for the most part does take out dairy and it recommends like lactose-free milk or oat milk, which, uh, you know, I have a lot of negative thoughts about like oat milk and almond milk and stuff like that nowadays, just because usually in my opinion, those types of things, those types of milks have like hardly any protein, like hardly any real great nutrients in my opinion and high amounts of sugar typically. Uh, but anyway, that's another topic for another day. Uh, so, you know, I did kind of this low FODMAP diet, which you could look into if you think that's a, a something that might help you. You know, and all of these diets to some extent maybe gave me some ideas about what was helping, but I didn't really find any like real solution, right? Um, and then, you know, some people will also say like, oh, well, maybe like too much fiber in the diet can cause, you know, gas, bloating, things like that. That may be true for some people. In my case, I found that it, it's... It's not necessarily that, like it's not necessarily one thing or the other. And I'm going to kind of get, you know, towards the end, talk about, um, well, a couple of the, the big rocks, if you will, so to speak, the big things that, that people like you and I, if we have digestive issues, might overlook. But the point is, it's like, it's not necessarily like a fiber issue. It's not necessarily a high FODMAP issue, eating these foods that are, you know, fermentable carbohydrates. It's definitely, at least in my case, not a lactose issue, uh, which I'll come back to in a little bit here. But anyway, kind of experimented with that. Then for a while earlier, uh, well, over the past six months to a year, went to an almost, not like a carnivore diet, but a, much, a diet much lower in vegetables. Uh, much lower in, you know, things that had different types of fiber. I shouldn't totally say that because I was still eating a lot of oatmeal, for example, which has a lot of fiber. I mean, there's different types of fiber, soluble and insoluble fiber, which I'm not even an expert on, which falls into which category. But the point is, it's not necessarily a fiber issue either. Uh, it's not necessarily an issue that is just, you know, processed versus unprocessed whole natural foods either. I would certainly recommend that to most people would be to eat mostly unprocessed whole natural foods. But the point is that doesn't, that doesn't just solve the issue by itself. I've also done, um, 
testing with multiple times now with Viome, which is a great company. They do uh, gut intelligence and health intelligence testing. And essentially what it does is it gives you, uh, well, you have to do a blood sample and a stool sample. So it's kind of gross. You have to do that. Uh, and then you send it into a lab and it tells you based on your blood sample and your gut microbiome that they get from your stool sample, from your poop, which foods are essentially the best for you, for your unique individual gut microbiome. And then it gives you a list of what they divide into superfoods, which are the best, best for you, enjoy foods, which you should still be eating a lot of, minimize foods, and avoid foods, right? And the thing is, this actually changes over time because our gut microbiome changes over time. So I did the first one just over a year, about a year ago, and then another one here recently, and it actually it changed a bit. A few of the foods on there changed categories. But the point is, um, it gives you these personalized recommendations. And, you know, taking those recommendations into consideration certainly helped a little bit, especially avoiding the foods on the avoid list, one of which was peanuts, which I didn't like because I used to eat a ton of peanuts and peanut butter. Uh, but eliminating that did seem to help. Um, anyway, so, you know, did that. Like, the point is I've done a lot of work with this, trying these different diets, you know, testing out these different things. And, and, and then... I'll just throw this in. This may not be the appropriate point in the episode to throw it in, but the emotional component of it. There's a big emotional component uh, of just you know how, how we're doing emotionally, our emotional state when we're eating, after we're eating, uh, and how it affects the way we digest foods. And at first, like it didn't really make sense to me. But now that I think about it, I, um, I really believe that yeah, that the emotional state we're in at all times has a big effect on the way we digest our food, whether or not it gives us gastrointestinal issues and just illness as, you know, in general. Because when you think about it, when we're in a stressed emotional state, what this is doing is we're activating the sympathetic nervous system, meaning that, which is the opposite of the rest and digest system, okay? The parasympathetic is the rest and digest system. So when we're in the sympathetic, when we're in a state of stress, any sort of stress, that means that our you know, things like our adrenaline are, is increasing. I'm just going off the top of my head here. I probably should have some, like, <laughs> something Googled to, like, make sure I don't screw up the explanation of this. But essentially, our, our adrenaline is increasing. Um, you know, our cortisol levels, our stress, uh, like all these stress hormones and things like that are increasing and it's shutting down at the same time some of these rest and digest functions because we're in a stress state. It's a survival state saying, okay, I need to ramp up this this adrenaline these stress hormones these fight or flight hormones and shut down the rest and, and digest and relax hormones so it would make sense in that case as it relates to digestion that if we're trying to digest food in a state like that it's not being digested as well okay it's not being digested very well when we're in that uh you know stressed state so whatever you can do to make sure you're eating in a calm state this is going to be one of the most important things regardless of what type of food you're putting into your body and what type of sensitivities you might have. Uh, one big thing that you can do is just take a couple of deep breaths before you begin eating. I know it sounds silly, but like a lot of us end up eating so much on the go in this modern world, especially if you live in the U.S. where I do. It's just like, okay, five minutes lunch, then back to work, you know. Uh, it's, the way, it's the way we live life, right? But eat in a calm state. That's something that really helps. Um, you know, okay, so like I said, there's the emotional component. Now let's get back a little bit into the nitty gritty, um, you know, which foods may trigger you or me or the whole rest of the world. So I've kind of touched on like lactose intolerance. 
outlets, right? A lot of people will, there's, you know, there's a lot of common, common food out, well, allergies and sensitivities out there. I mean, you could read about it, you know, if you have a real food allergy, obviously avoid that. But I mean, common ones are things like eggs, peanuts, uh, different types of seafood, you know, supposedly milk. Well, like, okay, let's just talk about, about milk and lactose intolerance here, because I've read a lot of different things on this. And, you know, like, for example, one thing will show here that like 12% of all Americans and 19.5% of African Americans may be lactose intolerant. And then, you know, it says lactose intolerance in adulthood is most prevalent in people of East Asian descent with 70 to 100% of people affected in these communities, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you know, and we hear that too, that there are some places around the world that they're just, they're way more lactose intolerant than we are. Um, you know, I, I've kind of heard that lactose intolerance, that to a certain degree, all of us have a lactose intolerance. It's just kind of a spectrum. And I can't even remember exactly why, but it's essentially it's something that like naturally occurs and kind of should occur as we develop is a certain level of lactose intolerance. But anyway, the point is, I, I think that the number of people that actually have like a true lactose intolerance or just any type of milk, dairy, whatever is going to cause anything with lactose is going to cause them a real problem is fairly low, at least like in the U.S. and in most of what we might call the Western world. Um, anyway, long story short, see what works for you. But like for me, for example, like let me give you an example of what I've been doing here when I've been in Casablanca, Morocco. So here, you know, what I like to do when I travel is I don't, I don't eat, like I usually like to just have like one big meal per day, like a big dinner. And then I'll have a few other things that are kind of more of a snack rather than like a full breakfast and lunch. Just because when I travel, like I like to, you know, I move around a lot and I always lose weight when I travel. I've talked about this on my Instagram on this trip about how, you know, I'm basically like intentionally losing, you know, burning some body fat. I'm still working out, eating what I consider enough protein to preserve muscle, uh, but really just having like one big meal a day and a few smaller things that you would almost consider like a snack earlier in the day. So what, is, what does that look like? What have I been doing here? Okay, so to break it down, and this isn't necessarily like the way I would recommend that you live, although like, you know, it could work for you. So I've been doing my workout typically around 10 a.m. here. Um, it's been nice. I've been, you know, on vacation so I can work out at 10 a.m. What a luxury, right? I would love to do that all year round. Working out at about having my coffee in the morning, just fasting, you know, coffee and water. Working out about 10 a.m., then about 11 or 12, uh, breaking the fast with literally just... How much is it? Is it's it's almost like a liter. Oh God, it's like yeah, it's like twenty-five or thirty ounces of milk, and it's it's slightly reduced fat milk, which I don't even really love. Whole milk is probably better, but it's it's essentially it's milk. It's like four hundred or five hundred calories total, with like twenty-five to thirty grams of protein. Um, you know, it's, it's 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 a lot of milk. The point is, it's a lot of milk, and it's what I'm doing post-workout. And in theory, that's a great time to have it. You know, to have. 25, 30 grams of protein and the sugar that's in there. But essentially, you break the fast with that. Then an hour or two later, I kid you not, I'm having a block of raw cheese. Okay, it's just like straight raw cheese. I love raw cheese. Sometimes I'll do the pasteurized, the non-raw stuff. But that has between like 50 and 65, up to even 70 grams of protein and quite a bit of fat as well. But just like, like this is what I'm starting my day with. It's like 11 o'clock. You know, 11 or 11.30, it's that milk. And then maybe like 12.30 or 1, that block of raw cheese. 
and nothing else until dinner. And then there's like a big dinner of like everything that I want, right? Like at like 6 p.m., you know, it might be, um, you know, obviously I'm trying to make sure I get enough protein. So it's meat, um, but vegetables, rice, bread, you know, uh, like a big full meal, right? And I'm not like counting total calories or anything, but I am making sure I get at least about 150 grams of protein per day in an effort to not lose muscle, right? And then I fast again until like 11 a.m. the next day. That's what I've been doing here. I'd love to have the luxury of doing that all year round, but my schedule just doesn't set up super well for it um, because normally I like to, when I'm at home and I'm working, you know, I, I, well, I do my workout right away in the morning, like at six o'clock, um, and I do like to make sure I get in protein and a decent meal shortly after the workout. So I don't do an intermittent fast that's that long when I'm at home. Anyway, I tell you this entire thing to explain that you see, okay, like all I'm having 11 a.m. and then 1 p.m. here is straight lactose. It is a lactose waterfall. <laughs> okay, that was a bad metaphor. It is just like a lactose cascade, a lactose hurricane, a lactose, a big, a big portion of lactose. You get what I'm trying to say? Okay, it is a liter almost of milk and a big block of raw cheese that's like, like more than half a pound, okay? Like 250 grams, I think it is typically, 200 to 250 grams. It is straight lactose, that is all it is, okay? And it's not causing me any digestive issues, okay? Um, now, I'm gonna come back to this a little bit at the end, but the point is, is like the lactose intolerance can be somewhat overrated. Like one thing I recommend all of you do, if you think that you're having some sort of a sensitivity, I recommend that you kind of check yourself in a way and say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is it really this thing that I think it is that's causing the sensitivity? Because there can be a lot of other factors as well. Uh, you know, like my ex-girlfriend used to think it was like whey protein that would cause issues for me. I've also now realized that, nope, that's not it as well because I have whey protein frequently now and can be totally fine when having whey protein. It all depends on a lot of other factors. It's not just the whey protein. Now, a point on proteins is that I recommend whether you get a whey protein or like a vegan protein, make sure it doesn't have a lot of bullshit ingredients. That's probably the bigger problem that a lot of us don't even realize. It's the bullshit ingredients, okay? The artificial sweeteners, the added sugars, the you know seed oils, things like that that come in everything, not just proteins, but... Um, you get the point. Make sure it doesn't have that bullshit because that stuff can definitely be more of a cause of digestive and gastrointestinal issues than the thing that you think is, such as, for example, whey protein or, you know, regular milk with lactose. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. Now, um, I guess one other point, uh, just to talk about gluten briefly, I don't know that much about gluten. Definitely don't know much about celiac disease, but I know a lot of people talk about like, oh, being gluten intolerant and blah, 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 blah. You know, research according to what is it, clevelandclinic.org shows that only about 6% of the U.S. population is actually gluten intolerant and celiac disease only affects about 1% of the population. Now this is, it's just one of those things that in my opinion, and like I said, not that much of an expert on this specific topic, but in my opinion, a lot of these things get over-exaggerated, such as lactose intolerances and gluten intolerances. Um, and... I, I would really venture to guess that it may not be the gluten itself or the lactose itself a lot of times. Because if you like, especially just a little bit like breads, you know, like if you look at things that have like wheat or supposedly gluten in them, the ingredients list is long <laughs> on a lot of these things. Like you can find, you can look on bread, like just off the top of my head here, you might find like, 
Well, like what comes in bread, okay? Like enriched wheat flour, sunflower oil, ding, ding, ding. Like, you know, like it's all sorts of like oils and maybe somewhat hydrogenated oil, crap a crapola. Like, I don't know what comes in this stuff, but it's not great sometimes. Uh, so some of these additional ingredients might actually be the problem, not actually the, the gluten itself. And like I said, I don't know, you have to experiment for yourself and figure out what works, right? But the point that I wanted to come back to at the end of this is that what I've actually discovered has maybe been the biggest factor that works for me to, to make sure I don't have any gastrointestinal issues, you know, gas bloating, any of that stuff on any given day is more related to food timing and quantity than the actual foods themselves. Like I could play around all day. I could go vegan or I could go carnivore or I could go everything in between. But I feel like food timing and quantity is the bigger issue. Now this first, okay, the, the quantity thing makes sense because it's like, well, if you think about it, if we eat less in general, you're probably going to have less gastrointestinal issues. Duh. Like sometimes me and other people just ignore the elephant in the room, right? Um, and, you know, so simply a calorie deficit, not eating as much food will take away a lot of the issues. Now the issue with that is being someone who does like to build and preserve muscle, I don't think it's a good idea to be in a calorie deficit that often. Sometimes I believe it's good to be in a calorie surplus or at a bare minimum eating enough calories to maintain our weight. We don't want to be in a calorie deficit always. That means we are losing weight and you get to a point where you don't want to lose any more weight. You definitely don't want to be losing muscle and there comes a point where you don't even want to lose more fat because it's not healthy. Um, but anyway, that is one surefire way to make sure, like some days if I have like a, like let's say I got like a date in the evening and I'm like, oh, I want to make sure I don't have any GI issues. I'll be like, okay, well, I'm just not going to eat that much today. Maybe then tomorrow, you know, for breakfast or lunch, I'll have a bigger breakfast than lunch, right? Um, so that's one thing and it, and it makes, makes sense. So just reduce the amount of food you eat a little. <laughs> That'll definitely help. The other thing for me is actually intermittent fasting does help quite a bit. And by intermittent fasting, I mean uh, either like a 16-8 window or an 18-6, something in that range. And what that is is essentially like the way I described what I'm doing here. So you have a between 6 to 8 hour eating window. You might start like at 11 a.m., have your first meal of the day, break your fast, and then stop eating at, you know, say 5, 6, 7 p.m., and then you have 16 to 18 hours of fasting before you start eating the next day. This, for whatever reason, does seem to help quite a bit. Now, the thing about this is, as far as meal timing goes and whether or not intermittent fasting is a good idea for most people, this will vary greatly from person to person, okay? For me, I feel as if my body does better. Let's say I'm going to eat 3,000 calories per day, which is a pretty standard number for me since I'm a larger human than average. You know, I need at least, but let's, let's say 3,000 calories per day. My body, my gastrointestinal system will tend to react better on two meals of 1,500 calories each, say at 12 p.m. and 6 p.m., than it would on like four meals of 750 each or six meals of 500 each. I don't do that well from what I've experimented with on like the four, you know, even three meals sometimes, like multiple, you know, three, four, five, six smaller meals a day. 
I don't typically do that great on it. In my opinion, for me, it works better having two somewhat larger meals. Now, you'd have to play around with what works better for you because we are all very different in this category um, as we are with pretty much everything that relates to food. But this is just one thing to mess around with. Now, one thing, one recommendation I would make is pretty standard for almost everyone is to don't eat within two hours of going to bed. That can solve a lot of your issues right there. Is don't eat anything. Some people will say like three or four hours, but like let's be realistic here. Like, you know, you're not always going to stop eating at 5.30 p.m. and go to bed at 9.30 like a perfect little old angel or something like that, right? Like we're human beings. This is the real world. Dinners with other people start late sometimes. But try not to eat within two hours at least of going to bed. Make, try to make that your goal always. Um, if you can do three or four, that's great. Sometimes I do that as well. Um, now, I also recommend not eating within two hours after waking up. You'll hear different experts with different advice on that. Um, but, yeah, I'm not going to go too much into that. The more important thing is to not eat within two hours of going to bed. Um, now, another thing for me, this is, this is controversial, and I hesitate to even say this because it's not good advice for a lot of people. But for me, I actually notice when I reduce just slightly the amount of water I drink, just slightly, not that much, but reduce the amount of water I drink throughout the day can actually help my GI issues. Now, keep in mind, I'm a person who drinks a lot of water. Like I'm an exercise health nut, like I drink a lot of water, okay? Like me reducing the amount of water I'm drinking throughout the day would probably be you increasing the amount of water you're drinking. But if you're someone like me who like just overloads on water all the time, because uh, keep in mind, this actually can be a thing where you can end up kind of messing with like the mineral, uh, I don't know if it's like lowering your sodium levels, but essentially you, you can drink too much water. It is possible to drink too much water. And sometimes I feel like I flirt with it borderline, you know, when you're just pissing like totally clear water colored urine, that's probably too much. Anyway, um, if you're peeing, you know, like once per hour, probably a little too much. But anyway, the point is, um, uh, you know, if you're like me and you drink tons of water, maybe reduce it a little bit. But for most of you that are listening to this, I should probably just tell you, drink more water because you're probably not drinking enough. And yeah, um, so anyway, I hope that that helps at least give you some things to think about if you struggle with these types of issues. Once again, everybody, everything is different for every one of us. Did that make sense? We're all different, okay? Our gut microbiomes are different. The way our bodies react to different things are different. Uh, you got to test things out. But for me, what I've noticed is more than, more than any particular like type of food or type of diet, it tends to be more about food quantities and food timing, meal timing. That um, tends to be the most important things to this point in my journey. Hopefully I'll do another episode at some point, whether it's months from now or a few years from now, whatever, where I say, hey, you know, I've got even more solved um, and, you know, we'll go from there. By the way, I, you know, one other thing just to add is if, like a while ago, just things you can play around with. Like one thing I was trying a month or two ago that seemed to work well, even when I was eating pretty high calories throughout the day and was not in a calorie deficit, would be just to not have any vegetables until dinner like I had like specific lists of foods that I was having for breakfast and lunch where even if I knew I was having a big meal as long as I didn't have these certain foods before dinner I wouldn't have issues but anyway it's like I said it didn't work perfectly I, I, 
it, I just wanted to throw that in at the end uh, just as like another thing that you could try. But the point is this is all about personalized experimentation. Anyway, hope you got something out of this and uh, we will talk again soon. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Let's all make health and fitness a part of our daily lives. Get out there and do it.